Oh, that does that mean it's recording? Right? Yeah. All right. Today's um, class is a continuation on our series on Russia, and we left off last time with the uh, controversy of the possessors and non-possessors at the time when the uh, the fall of the patriarch uh, fall of the Byzantine Empire and the Russian, uh, well, the Principality of Moscow sort of seeing itself as the continuation of the Byzantine Empire and the the uh, ruler of Moscow is the continuation of the emperor. This, uh, this earlier controversy reflects some of the divergence between, who's that? Oh, okay. Um, uh, with the possessors, the introduction of some of the ideas of the of the uh, West, the uh, Inquisition, and the idea of the state punishing heretics were introduced into Russia. <coughs> and the, going forward, what we're going to see is a continuous uh, introduction of Western ideas into the Russian Church. And the Western and the Russian uh, state, because the uh, the country of Russia now is the sole surviving major Orthodox country, and particularly until the 19th century, when all we have all these uh, Balkan uh, countries kind of restored from the Turkish Empire. And the con- con- connection with the uh, influence of the of the Orthodox Church living under the Turks is it's there, but it's somewhat tenuous. Whereas, really, the influence of the West, which are other powerful countries, which are the real kind of neighbors of the of the Russian state, is much more uh, kind of aggressive in its uh, effect on Russia. I'll just start out with Ivan the Terrible, um, who. Is a, a king of, of uh, the ruler of Moscow and, and ruler of Russia, and so we don't normally think of a particular rulers as important church figures, but in fact, in some ways, he um, has a kind of uh, important influence on on Russian life because two things. One is that he's the first to sort of openly have himself crowned as czar so kind of in a in a visible way identifying himself as the continuation of the Byzantine emperor definitely considering himself the replacement of the Byzantine emperor on earth <coughs> however so on an outward level you could say that the continuity with the Byzantine church is stronger but in an inner level we have here the introduction of uh, Western absolutism, the idea of the king as being the person whom God has selected to rule, and that ultimately the king becomes the unquestioned source of all law and all uh, essentially morality. So with Ivan the Terrible, there's a certain sense in which he's a kind of a, I'm in the fourth, uh, an unbalanced 
person. And you could say perhaps the part of the problem was that he was crazy. But on, but on the other side, there's a there's a definite ideology which pervades his entire reign. And this ideology is, is this idea of the uh, kind of absolute monarchy, um, and, or what we later use the word autocracy, that the uh, ruler is kind of the source of, of everything. <coughs> so this causes Ivan to uh, want to kind of see the not only the uh, secular rule, so the, he, part of his thing is kind of destroying a lot of the nobility, and uh, but also that the church should be under his direct rule as well. There shouldn't be any questioning of his decisions by the church. So during his time, uh, one of the most famous things is that the metropolitan uh, Philip, whom he appointed as kind of the head of the Russian church, the uh, that he had him put to death because metropolitan Ivan. One of the things Ivan was doing was executing massive numbers of people. There were nine uh, periods of, of mass executions th throughout the reign of Ivan the Terrible. And Philip was uh, reprimanded him for this. And so Philip was arrested and, and, and uh, murdered in, his, in the prison. It turns out actually that a previous uh, candidate, the person before Philip also uh, was probably murdered by Ivan for a similar cause <laughs> that he was not, um, you know, although this all was, a, was in private because it was before he was formally installed, but he was a uh, sort of someone that was going to be P Metropolitan uh, Hermann. <clears throat> in, in part of this uh, kind of example of, of Western influence, one of the things that Ivan used to conduct his reign of terror and uh, part of uh, what we say kind of Ivan is in some ways a kind of uh, prototype of a lot of Russian history because Ivan and, and then uh, Peter after him who actually sees Ivan the Terrible as his immediate kind of sees him as, as his uh, model and then later Stalin following all thought in terms of that the, you know, the ruler's goal was to create a totalitarian state where everything, where all uh, authorities other than the ruler himself were crushed and brought, everything was brought into subjection to the ruler. Yes? Uh, what time period is this? Well, uh, he's in the 1500s. He's a contemporary with uh, Queen Elizabeth. So the Protestant Reformation has recently happened. And um, just before him, actually, in some ways, Ivan, you know, people who think of him as just a crazy person, uh, which perhaps he was, the don't realize, think about uh, King Henry VIII, I mean, and, the, and some of his attitudes and taking kind of charge of the church and the number of executions, um, that at this time, sort of with the end of the Middle Ages and the end of um, society, the governance of society by tradition and the different roles that people had kind of under God's law, when as this was being replaced now with, actually in the the world, but later even in the Catholic world with rulers who saw themselves as absolute, where the ruler kind of replaces uh, the role of custom and law by his absolute, by his power, becomes absolute. 
this is really very parallel to Ivan. So Ivan, in some ways, is kind of an extreme form, just in the massive number of people that he killed. But he's, uh, but he's not unusual to his time. No, and particularly in Russian history, of course, the uh, the volume of, you know, does go up uh, with, with especially with Stalin, not so much with Peter, although he was similar. Yes. Uh, when he took Novgorod, there was 30,000 people killed, and um, I know that in the uh, in the in the killings in in Moscow, there were nine periods, probably thousands with each with each one. So um, this is kind of a yeah. It was a, I mean, in some ways, it preceded the modern. Uh, Use of terror, you know, in the Soviet system, the kind of the idea of the reign of terror as a, um, as in the French Revolution too, of kind of crushing all resistance because everyone becomes terrified that they're going to be next. So then there's, you know, the sort of uh, giving up of all uh, appeal to law because if you make any trouble or you know say anything, then you'll be the next. So you just if you just kind of give in to total dictatorship. Yes. Who was he killing? Well, all different people. Um, actually, a lot of clergy, the bishops. Um, the uh, the enlightener of the laps was murdered by him. Uh, was a famous monk who had gone up and done missionary work. But, um, lots of aristocracy, basically, because uh, he was oh, felt threatened by the aristocracy, so he had a lot of it killed off. But apparently, he killed off anyone who. Uh, who he thought would be a, who not only was a potential threat, but anyone that he thought did not um, completely uh, honor the proper position of the czar as kind of God's representative on earth. So that could, that could amount to just about anybody. Uh, but I would just talk about one of the things that he instituted, which was called the Aprichni, uh Aprichniki. It's our. Um, they were a monastic order, which of which he was the grand master and or abbot, and it was kind of partly based on the military orders of Western Europe. But uh, as someone has argued recently, it's perhaps even more likely that it was partly inspired by the Jesuits, who at that time, as Protestantism was spreading. The Jesuits were kind of leading the counter-reformation in the Catholic countries, and particularly in Poland, they were upholding the Catholic monarchy against the forces of the Protestant, uh, the lords who had accepted Protestantism. Now, of course, the Jesuits were not a military force going around massacring thousands of people, but <clears throat> there was... Um, he, of course, he knew about the military orders from the... Uh, Knights, the Teutonic Knights, who lived next door to Russia and were kind of traditional enemies of Russia, but <clears throat> so it was. It seems that it was a kind of combination of what he saw the Jesuits as doing, as as being an order, you know, sort of upholding the monarchy in Poland, um, and well, there was also the Inquisition and such that were along with that. But this becomes magnified and sort of militarized in uh, 
Ivan's mind because to him, the primary heresy that he's concerned about, you know, the Jesuits were interested in religious heresy. In Ivan's mind, uh, the you know the key, the main doctrine that people have to remember is that uh, he is God's anointed, and that his will is the will of God. So anyone who opposes his will is the worst of heretics. So this is. Um, so anybody who disagreed with him was was a heretic who deserved to be put to death, and this was a uh, led you know part of why this this ongoing process of of uh, mass executions and tortures he his, he was crazy too you know <laughs> he would he was it was it was consistent logically consistent um, so he had like a monastery with his soldiers and they would every day he would have church with them and then he would have the the uh, tortures you know that down in during the service, you know, after he would prescribe who was going to be killed and how they were going to be tortured, and then go down to watch the tortures. Uh, so he he's a a nut, you know, too. That's that's not it's not just a normal uh, little error on his part, <laughs> but some kind of personality to go with it. Yes. I have understood that the church has never sanctioned the killing of heretics for heresy. That's correct. Yeah, in the Orthodox Church, we don't. But the what in in Russia. Um, well, in the possessors controversy, I mean, the possessors uh, liked the idea of the Inquisition and kind of, and they were the ones that won out in that. So they they did introduce that, and then Ivan carries it to a yes. Ca possessors were the, it was uh, Joseph of Volokolamsk was the leader of the possessors, and they and it was a go against the non-possessors who were the monks of the uh, Transvolga monks, Transvolga elders. Uh, Neil Sorsky. So that, the, anyway, the possessors were the, the victorious, and so they believed in state intervention and and the killing of heretics. And this was state action against heretics. Anyway, they also killing them. But um, Ivan, let's see, the, you know, kind of takes this as a personal prerogative to himself. And uh, I guess you know that it's a kind of uh, gross example of the sin of pride and kind of identifying oneself with God and and then trying to logically carry that out uh, besides, you know, not being a very nice person, too. But the results of this... Oh, yes, did you have a question? Did, so did Ivan ever actually receive official sanction from the church for this kind of no, no, he was killing the Metropolitans who <laughs> who disagreed with him. <laughs> no, he didn't. He didn't. Uh, he, you know, he was getting he was getting rid of bishops as well. So he didn't. He wasn't uh, asking for the, anybody's approval for this. The results of this were that um, a series of military disasters. Because this, uh, although he started out the reign with some conquests under the help of his regents, when he because he was originally was a young person when he became king. But then as his uh, he took over and you know he was doing all these massacres that of course uh, undermined morale and made people uh, well decimated the country also and made people uh, less anxious to you know fight loyally for him. So and he was attacking pe different people so he had wars against the uh, the Tartars and to a certain aided by the Ottomans in the south. 
and then he was fighting with the Swedes up here and Poland and Livonia. And the result of this was that when he died, um, Russia was, well, Moscow was burned during his reign by the Tartars, and then later um, the uh, Poland took over a large portion of, of Russia um, after after his death. So this uh, brought Russia, you know, Russia kind of, after the fall of the Byzantine Empire, Russia becomes the successor and it's going to, you know, continue the Byzantine Empire, but because of Ivan's sort of megalomania, the this attempt, you know, kind of fails and now the the Poland and the West are sort of moving in and what happens is there's maybe sort of this alternation between kind of a in sense, one sense a realization that Russia has a unique role as the preserver of the Orthodox and Byzantine tradition but on the other side is kind of the realization of the let's say military uh, superiority of, of the West and so this sets up a kind of uh, I don't know, sort of ambivalence. You know, on one hand, they want to pre- we're preserving something, and so we're uh, maybe thinking, you know, we're better than the West. In other sense, we're real, you know, we're we're become afraid of the West and and start copying it in a lot of things. And that uh, those tendencies sort of go out go through Russian history a bit. The uh, next person I want to talk about is part of this kind of copying the. As Poland takes over, they decide to that the, they've already had Orthodox people living in the, the Western Russian areas that they control, and now they have more. And especially under the city of Kiev, the Ukraine is the area now under Polish. As it's kind of gone back and forth, it's been the Western Russia. Remember, was not normally under Moscow's control because it wasn't under Tatar control or Mongol control, and but the church, um, Lithuania and Poland, you know, it, it were at times kind of somewhat potentially uh, loyal, you know, thinking of becoming Orthodox and then ultimately don't because Moscow becomes identified as sort of a, as the Orthodox monarchy. And what happens is the Polish king decides to force uh, the Orthodox church in in uh, the in his territories to come into union with the with the Roman Catholic Church, and this is the beginning of what we call uh, today the Uniots. We are uh, there's all different Uniots, I suppose, but the one this in particular the this referring to the what we call the Carpatho-Russian or Ukrainian Uniots. <coughs> they are uh, people who were part of the original. Kievan Rus, who were Orthodox, but because they had been living for a long time under the Polish, or uh, in some cases the Austro-Hungarians later, they <coughs> are influenced by those governments to join into in the Catholic Church, although given uh, the rights to preserve their services and certain aspects, things like the uh, marriage of clergy, so on. So this, uh, these people, well, this. This institution, which starts in uh, 1596, the Union of Brest-Litovsk, still exists, and we have uh, 
plenty of uh, Ukrainian Uniot churches in this country. It's coming from that time. <coughs> the official, the orth, anyone who was not part of the Uniot church was sort of officially outlawed. So there was supposedly now no Orthodox church left under Polish control, but in fact there was. There were formed a group of Orthodox brotherhoods which kept alive Orthodoxy, and there were some Orthodox bishops who were kind of connected with the brotherhoods who kind of were in secret, uh, keeping Orthodox tradition alive and kind of the, so we say, the Byzantine patristic uh, spiritual tradition. After a while, the Polish king realizes that Orthodoxy is still there. He hasn't succeeded in completely getting rid of it. <coughs> and that the people in it are preserving, you know, this kind of loyalty to a uh, alien culture. So another method is tried, in which is to recruit um, sympathetic Polish-educated uh, Orthodox to form a new hierarchy. And this is done where a group of people uh, who were educated in in uh, Polish and Latin schools, who were were loyal to Poland, are now put into place officially in order, as the king you know is offering as a concession to uh, restore the Orthodox Church, but in fact to put in to to essentially get rid of all the old bishops who had resisted and put in pro-Polish bishops who are now going to uh, lead the Orthodox Church towards Poland. One of these people is um, Peter Mogila, and he's from 1596 to 1647, so kind of a well, period of kind of beginning up to the English Civil War period. Um, he's made uh, initially the uh, abbot of the Kiev Caves Monastery, which of course is one of the great sacred places of, you know, origins of Russian church. And there he establishes a Polish Latin school, closes down the uh, the Greek Russian school, and essentially is take kind of part of this cultural war to get rid of the Russian past and say, okay, we'll be Orthodox, but we'll have, we'll have to have a, a Polish Latin education now in, in our schools. <coughs> when this transfer of the new bishops occurs, Peter is chosen to be the, the uh, Metropolitan of Kiev. So that is the head of, he's the primate of the West Russian Church, and a, a lot of sympathetic bishops along with him. And he begins a whole policy <coughs> of uh, Polonization, also Latinization. It turns out that Peter is um, involved with negotiations to bring the whole, now that he's been made bishop, he is in, involved in negotiations to bring the rest of the Orthodox into the Unia. He, he completely agrees with Roman Catholic theology on every point. He thinks there's no theological problems to the Orthodox all becoming Uniates. But he wants what he wants is he wants the Orthodox Church in Poland to be given autocephalous status and be self-governing under himself uh, from the Pope. So he wants a political deal, but he doesn't think there's any theological problem. So what in fact is, is I mean, he's a Roman Catholic in his theology. But he begins... So that, that would mean the Pope would not only be Pope? Well, he would be the Pope, but he would be giving uh, 
Well, I mean, it's kind of strange what autocephaly would be in a Roman Catholic system. It's, I don't know what that is, but it didn't work out. So <clears throat> he does um, remain, you know, technically in the, in the Orthodox Church, but he begins to reform all the services. Um, he sort of goes down, closes down all the Greek Russian seminary, Greek Russian seminaries, which are by Greek Russian, in other words, seminaries using Russian and Greek languages and, and writings and institutes a whole group of Latin-based seminaries because the educated language in Poland was Latin. So all seminary education is being done in Latin. And the uh, services are revised in order to make them more similar to the Roman Catholic, also to implement uh, the... Uh, to fit in kind of more with the sacramental theology of the Roman Catholic Church. And he was involved in this whole revision process. And what's odd is that at this time, the Uniat services were much closer to the original uh, Orthodox services, whereas his services were more, in the Orthodox Church, were were more similar to the uh, Polish Catholic services. Yes, Bob? Uh, how, did he, how did he become Roman Catholic in his theology if he was Orthodox? Because he was before, before that. Yes, I mean he's an or from an Orthodox aristocratic family, educated in Poland in Catholic schools, and and so that he was part of this group of young uh, aristocratic. I mean people. Well, let's say well-educated Orthodox people from that were being educated within Poland and were seen as loyal to the Polish government, and that's why they were they were all put in as bishops because. They, that was part of getting rid of the so old guard. So basically, when he went to these Western Latin schools, you know, they yeah. basically indoctrinated him, you know, to, to either you know, deny Orthodox distinctives or else to not see them as, you know, different. Exactly, that's true, and this is why. I mean, in a wide scale throughout the Orthodox world. Um, the fall of the Byzantine Empire leads, you know, even though you had a sort of Latinization going on at the end in the Constantinople, I mean, the whole Orthodox world is sort of swept with this problem of a uh, influence of Roman Catholic or Western theology. I mean, Cyril, he's contemporary, actually, is oddly enough, with Cyril Lucaris, mm -hmm. the patriarch of Constantinople, who was a Calvinist because he was educated in Protestant schools. So he's, <laughs> he's a five-point Calvinist. And, you know, but they're... You know, and the other one's basically Roman Catholic, and they, the, the neither, you know, they're none of them because nobody's being educated in Orthodox schools. Yes. You're talking about Peter Mogila? Yes. And he was metropolitan of Moscow? Of Kiev. 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 Yeah. Yes. Um, that seems to have been that, that, that tactic, it seems to have been the Roman Catholic tactic for a long time. Basically, yeah. to try to convince the Orthodox that they're really, that, that, that there are no distinctive differences between the Roman Catholics and the Orthodox. So right. The only difference is that they don't recognize the Pope, and if they just recognize the Pope as the supreme you know, head, then everything would be fine. Yes, but fine. yeah, and that's right. Yeah. That seems it, 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 it seems smart from one perspective, you know, because you don't have to convert anybody. You know, there's one point only that you have to convert them on. Right. So you say, so since you convince them that they're they're just like you. Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, it's well, it it's because of, of the essentially ignorance of the Orthodox tradition. But they right. have been. You know, this is the, the thing that I think that's been going on is that, that they're actually convinced of that mm -hmm. because they read 
Orthodox, you know, Eastern writers through Augustine, mm-hmm. and they try to find similarities or where there are ambiguities, they try to interpret Eastern the fathers to be consistent with Augustine. So they actually yeah. think that the Eastern fathers are Augustinian, although kind of, you know, very implicit and, and yeah. kind of unclear. Well, and where they, I mean, they don't, where they don't, they don't agree with the Eastern Fathers, of course, they just teach them as mistaken or fuzzy or, yeah. or don't teach it. So the, these problems of people from the Orthodox countries were not learning, obviously not learning theology from Orthodox sources, so. So it's been a long-standing tactic of, yeah. of, the, of the West, you know, at that 1453 council, the right. council, you know, they, they tried to convince the, the Orthodox there that, that, that which are the Basil and all these other guys, you know, these side all oh, the, you mean the Council of Florence? Yeah. You know, different, different points like that. Yeah. That, that, that those guys actually taught, you know, Filioque and everything else. Yeah. So that's been their, their approach all along. Yes. Yes. Um, I probably just got something totally off, maybe, but did you say that the Patriarch of Constantinople was a five point Calvinist? Or? Yes, at that point he was. Cyril, Cyril Lucaris was the. And he's, he's a famous Protestant. <laughs> Essentially, he was a, the Praetor of Constantinople, but he was educated uh, by uh, I think he was in Holland, maybe, but I can't remember now. But he was uh, he was corresponding with Dutch Calvinists and well, endorsing. Like, like, you throw out all the liturgical stuff. Well, because not everyone else in the Patriarchate was was a five point Calvinist. He was the only one, oh, so so he, didn't throw it so he wasn't able to do much and. Um, but still, it was you know it's a sign of the times that you have essentially non-Orthodox people leading the church. Yes. How did he become the patriarch? Well, in the Turkish system, you became the patriarch by bribing the sultan to make you patriarch. <laughs> so the uh, you had a problem. You had I mean you had in the under the Turks the church didn't really get to pick. So the the and the you needed money to become a patriarch and the uh, increasingly the western countries were the source of money so the embassies so France was naturally wanting to see bishops who were pro-Catholic put in so they would pay up for them and there were a number of, of uh, patriarchs who essentially were Roman Catholic and then you had um, the, naturally the England and Holland didn't want a Catholic patriarch they wanted a fav- one who would be favorable to uh, Protestantism so when Cyril came along they, they would paid up to make him patriarch and uh and since it simply was a, an office that was bought by the uh you know bought from the turks Turkish sultan and he didn't care other than you know he didn't want he didn't want any rebellions or anything but that was it yes isn't the Rusicon meant to do pretty much the same thing today it's meant to take orthodox people or or eastern right catholic people and and teach them a, basically a Roman mindset and Roman theology so that yeah. they will go back into their respective churches and bring that with them. And, yeah. that's, and it's meant for that purpose. Right. Yes, I mean, it, tra- it trains also non-Slavic, but it teach teaching you, I mean, the services there are in Russian, and they it's intended to train uh, clergy that will look Orthodox, you know, do all the services and ever speak, uh, the languages, but will be in fact Roman Catholics and teaching Roman Catholic doctrine. Yeah. That was about. The, she was asking about the uh, Rusicon in Rome. It's a school. What is it called? The Rusicon. Um, yeah, it's not. It's not really spelled that way. I think, but but I can't remember. 
exactly how it's spelled. Well, it's been around for a while for a long since time. the. Uh, I'm not sure when it was started, but it's. Uh, yeah, but it's training. Trains clergy for service in Slavic and for Russia or connected countries to, who. Uh, to basically, you know, this. I think it's Russia mainly because the service is, I think, it's Slavonic. Yes. Isn't it true that an awful lot of the uh, bishops in the Orthodox Church today had much of their training from Roman Catholic schools? I don't know. Uh, quite a few, I mean, are trained in Orthodox seminaries. Uh, there may be some who are trained in Catholic schools. I, I, I mean, there are some, of course, but I don't, I don't know the proportions. Yes, that's right. But I, I don't know the proportions. Uh, you know, so I. I and was our patriarch Ignatius trained in Catholic schools? I have no idea uh, where he was trained. But, uh, the, uh, I wasn't even trained in Catholic Oh. <laughs> so lots of the faculty at St. Vladimir's uh, and uh, the other Orthodox seminaries have degrees from Catholic schools? Uh, St. Vladimir's mostly from uh, St. Sergius in uh, Paris, which is an Orthodox school. But, and the professors before that came from uh, Russia or uh, other. I would imagine they there may very well because they now because the people who are from Russia and Eastern Europe originally are those that generation is mostly gone. I imagine and so it, now you probably either have them trained at Orthodox schools or or possibly Catholic uni whatever universities are around. But uh, but it is a pro uh, it's a problem. But actually. Uh, you know, we have kind of a revival of uh, Orthodox theology in our time, and that's uh, it's interesting because it, it it doesn't come well. It does come from the end of of, of Russia, you know, before the communists. But it's and it, it's an interesting thing. I mean, in some ways, uh, the diaspora, you know, may have uh, facilitated that because, as we'll see, the system that Peter Mogila creates ultimately will become the Russian Orthodox Seminary and liturgical system because of Peter the Great uh, his ideas I mean he this is this is really where uh, under Peter Mogila is kind of the uh, founder of the kind of systematic Latinization of the Russian church although there's Latinization going on uh, by others you know, obviously, you know, culturally in terms of music and architecture and art, <clears throat> but in terms of the services, the, the, the liturgical, the sacramental theology, not all his doctrines are, of course, incorporated. He believed in uh, the Augustinian doctrine of original sin. He believed in the Immaculate Conception, all kinds of things that we don't, you know, naturally didn't become the official doctrines of the Russian Church, but the uh, liturgical formulas where he, he you know, was influenced by uh, Roman Catholicism. Those ultimately are ad ad adopted in the in Russia, and to a certain extent, the whole seminary system, using <coughs> Latin uh, seminary textbooks. Essentially, he's what he introduced was Latin scholasticism as the basis of theological education, and this is why, in the, you know, kind of the czarist period of Russia, you have this real problem <coughs> of the education in the seminaries being a, totally along Western scholastic lines and, you know, almost completely unconnected to the Orthodox spiritual tradition. 
And so you have a, a kind of break uh, in the church between the spirituality of that was kind of then comes kind of revived in the monasteries and to a certain extent among people, uh, and and the official theology, the official theological system. Yes. So the monasteries pretty much stayed uh, orthodox, or can you even say that? To a certain extent, and then there was there comes the revival of uh, patristic. Uh, theology at, in the 1700s and coming in, and in, actually in the in 1800s is really as that revival. That's where it comes through, and and that's why, you know, in a sense, we inherited that uh, from from Russia after the after the uh, fall. Although, I mean, I, even I'm sure that you know we benefited, but I mean, since the West, the uh, West received the uh, emigrants after the the fall of the Tsar. What does uh, Peter Mogillis uh, believe, or what do you believe about uh, you know Palamism, you know created, uncreated? I, I doubt he believed it um, because I I think his theology was probably totally coming from Thomas Aquinas, but I I don't know specifically. You know, I don't recall anything uh-huh. specific about that. Yeah, I, I saw uh, I think Clistos Ware, mm-hmm. Bishop Clistos, uh, did his PhD dissertation on Peter Mogillis' theology. Oh really? That's uh, I, I saw a copy. Didn't read it, the whole thing. But just read part of it. Uh, oh, that's right. Yeah, that would be uh, very interesting to read. Yeah. Just. Would you say that the Russian Church was more or less Roman Catholic influenced in the 19th century than it was in the 16th century? Well. Those are the two ends of the spectrum. In the 16th century, and I mean, Peter Mogila is uh, living to the 1640s, so it's the 17th century already. And initially, he's doing all of this in Polish Ukraine. It's it's actually uh, Peter the Great who who implements his system into Great Russia in the beginning of um, around 1700. So you so it's the 18th century is kind of the um, uh, high point of this Western scholastic movement. The 19th century is a reaction back against it, and which we benefit from. Yeah. Yes. I'm kind of surprised that uh, that these bishops could espouse these teachings and not be uh, disciplined or, or uh, by the other Orthodox bishops in the world. Yes. Uh, well, one of the difficult. Well, of course, in Poland they were all being put in together. They and Poland now was militarily dominant. Uh, Russia was in you know chaos. The uh, Greeks were all under the Turks and essentially were looking to uh, Russia, especially, but to the um, uh, Orthodox people living outside the Turkish realm for help. I mean, for for financial. Uh, support. It's it wasn't that, uh, and and of course travel was rare and difficult and language barriers. I there wasn't uh, a really efficient network of you know everybody keeping track of everyone else. Also, as I described the situation in the Turkish Empire, uh, patriarchs were replaced you know the drop of a hat because every time you got a new patriarch you had to pay somebody had to pay a new fee. So people bishops are just being tossed around you know at at the whim of the Turkish sultans and, and uh, 
so there, nobody was in position, really, to keep an organized uh, check on things. So Do you know how it's going price to become patriarch is these days? <laughs> no, I wouldn't want to speculate. <laughs> no, I don't think we have a... Uh, well, of course, it's not that system now. I guess... Um, I, I guess they... I, mean, I still have to have the approval of the Turkish government, but uh, officially, the old... Uh, System is not in place, but but I don't know how it works. It just seems chaotic. Yes. Well, well, what Peter was doing, I mean, from the point of view of the people in the Ukraine, is that he was making orthodoxy respectable by making it look like Roman Catholicism, that they were well educated, that they were learning all the same things that the Catholic priests were learning. They were you know, able to debate in Latin and, uh, you know, doing things Polish. And, and uh, so that gave that gave the church in Ukraine, you know, kind of freed them from persecution, but it didn't. But unfortunately, it also um, began this sort of process of, of the westernization of theology and, and, uh, and practice. Now, unfortunately, I think we're running out of time, but um, the... A very good book. If you if you were interested in either of these, uh, for Peter uh, Mogila, I would rep- rec- recommend um, Florovsky's Ways of Russian Theology, Volume One. For Ivan the Terrible, uh, Saint Philip Metropolitan Moscow Encounter with Ivan the Terrible by George Fedotov. Or two, I recommend. And I guess the uh, the, my, the next thing I was going to talk about was the Old Believer Schism which was part of this because actually the Old Believer Schism was about introducing uh, the services from the Ukraine into um, into Russia, partly uh, partly from the Ukraine and partly from Venice, the service books. Um, and, these, um, and the reaction of Russians to that were who became ultimately the Old Believers, the ones who didn't accept to have their service books replaced by Peter Mogila's or the uh, Greek, Italian Greek service books. But I'll have to talk about that next time and get to Peter the Great, who is sort of, uh, you know, in some way brings kind of to a definitive end, <laughs> in some ways, the uh, survival of the Byzantine tradition in Russia and kind of implements. Uh, you know, kind of again, a kind of complete Western totalitarian state and control of the church and society. Obviously, the church survives and you know, kind of revives. Uh, you have many saints, despite all of these terrible things, and the church kind of reviving in the 19th century. But, um, <clears throat> but, but uh, Peter, you know, would have to. You know, is kind of the person who really uh, solidifies the. The split in Russian the Russian society and makes the so- the society officially kind of in a way anti-orthodox and the church and orthodox spirituality kind of re- surviving kind of an underground way in a, in a way the um, <coughs> or un- the um, for Peter Mogila one of the you know it's kind of one of the things that kind of this creating this whole sort of uh, people who are not <coughs> let's say blatantly Roman Catholic in every respect but they were using Roman Catholic forms to express everything, and um, one of the people that we are familiar with, uh, you know, Dmitry of Rostov, was part of uh, Peter Mogila's circle, and so he's he collected a whole bunch of uh, 
his, a lot of his writings, lives of uh, saints and things. But there's, um, you know, who's, so in some ways, uh, some of the things you could say were good. I mean, he's collecting writings of saints, but he's all coming from uh, the point of view of a, of a Western author. I mean, as a, and so essentially, to, in some ways, it's a Roman Catholic point of view on many things. <laughs> Not that he was Roman Catholic in all his theology, but uh, but that's where why in uh, Russia in this period, 1600s, you start to have a kind of alien feeling to some of the writings that just seem somehow more Roman Catholic than Orthodox, and, and they don't they don't seem to resemble the patristic Byzantine writings at all. And that's why I mean, as a person essentially a Catholic author uh, writing writing these things. I mean, it's, it's, and he's a part of a whole group. But anyway, I, we need to go to uh, service, so thank you.